Superhumanize. Accelerated evolution. Does your brain sometimes feel like a very uncomfortable or even threatening place? If so, you are not alone, and you're also neither broken nor flawed. Being a modern human often comes with challenging experiences of aloneness, isolation, as well as relational, cultural, and intergenerational trauma. And the ways our brains react to these difficulties is normal and makes sense. This is what my guest today teaches. Sarah Payton is an international speaker and neuroscience educator and the best-selling author of Your Resonant Self, Guided Meditations and Exercises to Engage Your Brain's Capacity for Healing. Sarah's mission is to help us transform our brains into a kinder, cozier places to live. summer and I have passionately dedicated the last 12 years of my life to creating the ultimate human experience mentally, physically and spiritually based on the most powerful ancient teachings and cutting edge modern discoveries and technologies. The Superhumanized Podcast is a show committed to sharing what I have learned from the world's leading experts in order to help you achieve your full potential and create your best life ever. Sarah, thank you so much for being with us today. Welcome on the Superhumanized podcast. It's an honor to have you. Oh, it's a delight to be here. Thank you for having me. I'm really so excited to speak with you today, Sarah. When I learned about you and when I researched you in your book, The Resonant Self, you speak about the inner voice every person has and how for some people this voice can be a source of comfort, of warmth, and how for others it can be very cruel and cause turmoil. And uh, I personally very much to the latter. I've had an overwhelmingly large and overpowering inner critic for most of my life. And just in the recent years have started to even understand what that means, that concept, how it's impacted me, and also started to learn and focus on healing, which is why when I heard about you and your work, I immediately knew I have to speak with Sarah because I also know a lot of the people in um, my audience are focused emotional and mental well-being. And your work, amongst other, is based on mindfulness science, neurobiology, as well as trauma treatment. Can you yes. tell us about what you do and how you came to your vocation, please, Sarah? Yes. What what I do is I write and speak and teach and lead classes and do personal sessions for people who want to make their play, their brains a good place to live. I have this image of we can live in a nice nest that we've lined with down and that our that we where we have a place to nestle in and be comforted within ourselves or we might have a nest that has been coiled from barbed wire from the barbed wire of trauma and it makes perfect sense that our brains do what they do. Uh, this is such an interesting thing to say. It makes perfect sense because, of course, many of us have had the experience of coming out of a, a childhood that seems perfectly normal, 
but we have this really intense inner critic and we're like, how does, you know, I sure understand if I came out of terrible abuse, terrible neglect, I sure understand that my would have barbed wire in my brain. Where has the barbed wire come from if I had a kind of a normal time with my people? And what's so interesting is we begin to work with the brain and with healing is that we can start to see the way that transgenerational trauma has an impact on our brains and on our families, as well as larger forces like culture or nations or these kinds of things. But in particular, this transgenerational trauma has such an impact on how our brains work. And in part, this is because we don't just, we do internalize the way that our parents treat, we also internalize the way that our parents treat themselves. Uh. So if our parents were very kind to us, but we're not kind to ourselves, themselves, we actually have imported their whole brain systems and we carry those with us. So we have to do transgenerational healing no matter who we are. Wow, that is truly fascinating. I have never thought about it in this way. And the transgenerational healing has come up in some of my learning, also some of my conversations that I've been privileged to have with other healers such as yourself. And usually it would refer to traumatic experiences, you know, down the line of our ancestors or, you know, immediate forebears like our parents or grandparents, but even further down the line. But this puts a completely different light on this as well. How our parents treated themselves, even if they treated us wonderfully. Ah, Yes. Could you give us an example of that? would be widely occurring, but that sure. most of us wouldn't even think about. Sure. So if we have a mother, the, the most one-to-one replication that happens is with moms to daughters, mm-hmm. but we also import our father's brains if we're women or if we're men, we import our mother's brains. So all of them have, all of the brains in our family have an effect on us. But let's say we have a mom who suffered from depression. She was very kind to us. She was functional enough to make sure that we got to school. She was functional enough to show up for school plays and to to track our being in the world. But her own experience was one of trying to drag herself through life. And so what happens for us is we have this very sweet relationship with our mom. But what we internalize is the way that she is with herself. So whatever her traumas were that led to her depression, because oftentimes things happened in our parents' generations. They had parents die. They had other people that were important to them die. They had to, in military families, the families have to move all the time. There's no rootedness. And so what kind of, if we sit and we think, what did my parents live through? What did they survive? In, In my generation, my parents lived through World War II. In other people's generations, their fathers or mothers lived through the Vietnam War or the Korean War, or now we're starting to see with the little kids that their parents lived through the Gulf War or have lived through military service in Afghanistan. And these things then, they come to us. We'll often think that when we start this healing journey, we'll often think that it's our fault that our fathers lost their temper all the time. Mm. 
And then we discover, oh, my father was in the war. There's military PTSD was a was a factor in the way my family was organized and the way we dealt with stress. No one ever named it. So I think these are a couple of things that are quite common. Ariane, what happens for you when I start to talk about these possibilities and patterns? It resonates very much, Sarah. You might have seen it in my facial expressions and you probably just sense it. I, I sense that obviously you have not only huge empathy, but you, I think you pick up on things that many people don't. And so for me, my father also experienced the Second World War. He was born in 1935. So he was a little boy and yeah, under the uh, Nazi regime. And he experienced not only the Second World War, but also the hunger years thereafter. So him being a little boy, him being a teenager was really steeped in that. And I love and adore my father. We have a very special relationship. And I also realized that parts of that relationship have been, as his experience has been steeped in that, our relationship has had influences from that. Because what I think especially people of his generation, it was not necessarily normal for them to not even to acknowledge and then also not to seek healing from the trauma that they experienced because so many people experience trauma. You just had to keep on surviving and functioning. So you just put it under the rug and one foot after another. Yes. One foot after the other. And I, I heard that also from other friends who have had either themselves experiences with a war or their parents or grandparents. So for me, that really resonates very deeply. And something else that you brought up before also resonates with me where you said a lot of us come from what we consider normal and wonderful childhoods. I certainly consider myself extremely privileged. I have had a, a great, safe and abundant childhood. I moved a lot from country to country, uh, continent to continent every three to four years, my father was in the diplomatic service. So I always considered myself extremely privileged. Whenever I ran into certain problems or issues emotionally, mentally, for me, that's always also been coupled with guilt because it's like, what do I have to complain about? But why do I have these problems? I have no right to feel bad or depressed or anxious. I'm super lucky. And then also, of course, that shamed myself further, repressed the issues further. So I've just recently also learned to just be with what is, accept it, and then make space for transmutation. Yes. And there's this sort of sweet thing that we can do if we're in this position of going, gosh, I'm so lucky. What do I have to complain about? We can also say, and what did I feel? And how does how do those little feelings that I had in relationship to having to move all the time or losing very good friends or having to leave companion animals behind, how do those small experiences inform me for my connection with others? Yes. Instead of saying, oh, I don't have anything, we get to say, oh, I do. I have a feelings and my feelings make me human and my feelings allow me to connect with other people and wonder if I understand them. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's a great way of reframing it. And for myself, I've, I've noticed, and I'm sure some people in the audience may also resonate with that, that I have a, it's like a 
it's two polarities. One is being extremely sensitive and emotional and feeling everything, yes. which is uh, wonderful in a sense that can help me um, support others, assess how they're doing, be with them. Sometimes it can be overwhelming. The other, because I haven't learned to really channel the boundaries between other feelings and my own and not taking mm-hmm. responsibility for others' feelings. The other polarity is feeling nothing which yes. that then sometimes makes me feel like, what am I, a psychopath? Which I know I'm not. I've taken tons of tests, but, <laughs> but still it makes you wonder. And it's really been interesting in the last years to look at where does that come from? And also how can I lovingly accept it and then also grow from it, grow with it without shaming it or guilting myself? Yes, yes. And for us, when we think of ourselves as children, these moments when we do go blank and we feel nothing are so often really important survival strategies. Mm-hmm. And so it's very good to, to bring that respect that you're referring to, to whatever our patterns are, to say, of course, I would have a little dissociation, or of course, I would have a little blankness. Mm-hmm. And uh, almost like I often have this image that I love of what if your inner self were a wounded wild animal that you were trying to make a space for them to settle and find their space and to be able to be healed. Mm -hmm. It was a very different way to be with our dissociated or blank selves if we bring that respect and love and warmth for for the inner parts of ourselves that maybe don't have a lot of words or maybe don't have a lot of feelings, but just to know that they're welcome and that there's a space for them. Mm-hmm. I, I often find that kind of imagery really supportive. That is really uh, beautiful. I love that, Sarah. And it also, it, I think it links something in my conscious mind to something I subconsciously understand, like with a wounded animal to create that space where it feels safe. And not further attacked. So me by criticizing these things or places or facets of mine, I of course further scare them like a wounded animal be. But by just saying it's okay, you're safe here, you can be as you are, and all I'm offering you is love and curiosity, and I'm offering you a hand when you allow me to reach out to you, is a much different place to come from. It's so true. Yeah. When we talk about these places in us, so to speak, and and so many of us operate within this lifelong frameworks of shame or guilt, one of your concepts is healing shame by identifying broken contracts. Can you tell us what you mean by broken contracts and the healing steps? Yes, yes. This is a wonderful concept which can be so helpful. So for example, let's say, let's also take the transgenerational into account here since we began with that. If we have a a mother, for example, who lost someone she loved early, a sibling or a parent or or a grandmother, then she may have actually, as a child, we tend to blame ourselves for everything bad that happens until we get to be about nine years old. 
it's pretty much our only option. Well, after we're nine years old, we start to be able to see the world more expansively. And we can sometimes go, oh, dad's having a fit. And this is not about me. He's been drinking. We start to put those things together. But before nine, we go, oh, I've done something. What have I done? So if our mom lost somebody when before she was nine years old, then she very probably blames herself. Let's say a sibling. She, she may say to herself, as a little seven, eight-year-old child, she might say to herself, I will never play again. I will always be vigilant in order to make sure that no one ever is lost on my watch again. I will never let myself play again. So she has that contract. And we then, because we replicate her, we take that on. We find ourselves very hard to play. We find ourselves working all the time, watching all the time, being so careful for everyone all the time, almost not even existing ourselves because our attention is so far focused out in the world to make others safe. Mm -hmm. And so then if all of a sudden there's a moment when we begin to play, uh, just because humans have play circuits. It's part of what our birthright is. And it just bursts through sometimes, even if we have contracts against it, there can be a terrible shame response. This can happen with success as well. We can have contracts not to be successful. And then we can suddenly have a book published and we can go, oh my God. <laughs> or a podcast is going really well. We go, oh, and that shame backlash that can come can be because we have a contract not to be successful in order to stay with the people we love, not to outstrip our parents, not to outstrip our siblings to make sure we belong. And then if any of those kinds of contracts are inadvertently broken by life, we suddenly play, we suddenly experience joy, we suddenly aren't totally focused on the outer world, we realize, oh my God, I was playing. All of a sudden there's this terrible kind of backlash of shame. And so one of the ways to work with this is to start to say, what are my contracts? Mm -hmm. What agreements have I made with myself? And usually we know what we agreed, but we don't know why. Mm. That's why I call them unconscious contracts. Like we know oh, I should never play. I should never relax. Mm. And then we may even know people will get hurt. If I relax, people will get hurt. So, we, But if we look at it more closely, if we go, I swear to myself, we're claiming the agency for it. And we say, I, Sarah, swear to myself, I promise myself that I will never relax in order to, and then we can see what it is. We know that it's so that nobody gets hurt, but who are the nobodies? Who do we want not to get hurt? I will not relax in order to make sure. In my case, my mama suffered from a, a mental illness to some extent. And my never relax is I will never relax in order to keep the world together, in order to make sure to compensate for the cracks and the fissures in my mother's brain. I will hold the world together for her. And I say that and I feel like a funny heartbeat in my chest. So I know that it's true because our bodies respond when we say something that's true. Mm 
And then once we know what the contract is, we get to say to ourselves, do I want it? And I can say, oh gosh, my mother died 10 years ago. I I didn't need this contract after I left childhood and I certainly don't need it now. Sarah, I release you from this contract and I revoke this vow. And instead I give you my very enthusiastic blessing to play. (laughs) (laughs) So that's a little, a very small offering for you of what the unconscious contract work is like. Did that make any sense? Absolutely. And thank you so much for that, Sarah. I think a lot of the people who are listening uh, to you now, just as I myself am, well, that's something it makes total sense. And I'm very eager to apply that to myself later today. Because while you were talking about it, I already recognized my brain and my body and my soul reacting to it like, oh, <laughs> yeah. so this will be I think this this is an amazing tool on the path of self healing so much with Self-healing also, I I feel, has to do with finding back to our, I want to call it uh, natural self-worth, like feeling worthy. What is the difference between self-worth and self-compassion and how do we bring these together? Oh, what a wonderful question. Self-worth, I think it is, is it's, it's a really elusive People talk about self-worth and they have it be a bit like self-esteem and self-confidence, like that you can go out in the world and have some sense of certainty that what you have to offer is a good thing and that your presence contributes. These are such, and these are very sweet things to know. But what I love is to invite people to begin to go even a step deeper, which is a step into really mattering to ourselves, Mm. that our well-being matters just as much to us as if we had a child that we were taking care of and their well-being mattered to us, or if we had a little animal that we were focused on, a puppy or a kitten that we were focused on, that their well-being would matter to us. What's How do we move in the world if our need for safety matters, if our need for relationality and for connection with others matters, this is the thing. People often talk to me about having narcissistic partners or narcissistic parents or narcissistic bosses. or And what they're really saying is they're saying, I'm in a relationship where the other person doesn't have warm curiosity about me. I'm in a relationship where the other person is not changed by my presence and is not changed by my pain. What I love is when people do this work and they start to get bored with those relationships. So instead of saying, what can I do? My partner has no interest in me. They go, ah, this is a boring relationship. (laughs) (laughs) Great. I think I'll find a partner who's interested in me. That's my deepest love is when people make that movement. Yeah. And I think also when we get bored of certain things that have been reoccurring in our lives, whatever it is, whatever kind of dramas, sadnesses, things that just seem to happen on repeat, like some programming we have, once we actually look at it and can get into that place where we feel bored with it. Yeah. <laughs> That's when we can let it go. 
<laughs> so that I, I love how you just describe these partnerships with people yeah. who are narcissistic traits. Or and I, I, it's also so important that we learn to actually name our emotions. That's also something you focus on. Can you tell why this is the work of your city person, someone who lives in the same city with you, UCLA nurse, Matthew Lieberman, who's it it does this wonder has done this wonderful work with his fMRI machine at the UCLA uh, laboratories. And what he discovered was that when emotion is present, even in a photograph, Mm -hmm. the amygdala, lights up. You can see it in an fMRI machine. If we put me into an MRI machine on my back, there I am looking at the screen thing at the top. It's all claustrophobic, but there's a screen and they project a face with emotion on it. When my when I see that face, my amygdala lights up because we're, as humans, this is what we do. We respond to each other's emotions. So my amygdala lights up. If I name the emotion that it's not, if it's an angry face and I say, that is a sad face, my amygdala does not calm down. Mm-hmm. But if it's an angry face and I say, that is an angry face, then my amygdala activity falls. It's visible. So when we name emotional experience, when we give words to emotional experience, we're creating a kind of a garden of neurons. I, I like to think of it as a permaculture garden because as we grow it, it becomes more and more complex and intertwined and interrelated as we grow these neurons a permaculture garden of neurons we go oh that's anger there's this relaxation that comes for the brain and the same thing happens if we're having the emotion and we name it then we say oh yes i am angry and of course people can have contracts never to be angry. So then they're not allowed to name it. But if they become angry, then they'll have a shame response because they've broken their contract never to become angry because somebody in their life or their family was angry and scary and caused harm. And all all these things happen. But once we clear those contracts and we go, oh, anger is life-serving. Anger allows me to be an advocate, a powerful advocate for good in the world. Then we go, yes, of course I'm angry. (laughs) (laughs) and as we have that there's this body relaxation Mm -hmm. so there's such a way that being able to name what's happening for us emotionally allows us to step into present time Mm -hmm. and to be in present time with each other instead of being one removed in order not to feel what we're feeling Mm -hmm. and people will have contracts not to feel anger they'll have contracts not to be sad That's a very powerful one because one of the forms of attachment that people have is called avoidant attachment. And in avoidant attachment, when we're parenting from our avoidantly attached place, we turn down the volume of our children's sadness and we don't acknowledge their happiness or their celebration. Mm. So this is a cue for our bodies. If our parents did this, they can't bear it. And then we'll end up with a conviction like, I'm too much. I'm too sensitive. I'm too much. That's a real, if we know we're carrying, that's a real cue that our mother's and father's nervous systems indeed weren't okay with the gifts that a little child brings, which are full access to every emotion. (laughs) 
big emotions lived out. Mm-hmm. So what would the, it's not the opposite, but for example, something that for me has always been something that's impacted my sense of self and well-being really been a trigger for me is when I realize here, my conscious brain, it's, it's not other people's emotions are not my responsibility. Of course, if I go up to somebody and tell them all kinds of horrible things on purpose, <laughs> that's one thing. But just living life and somebody reacts yes. in a way that's um, angry or sad or disappointed to my own inner moral compass and life choices. That's always been a big trigger for me. If I thing that I cause others pain just yes. by being like a huge, that will really make my inner critic flare up massively and tell me how worthless I am. Yes, so I know this now yeah. and I've been working on it. So I'm sure you may have encountered that before. Oh, and myself even. Before. Yes. Yes. I remember even if I, it's so intense, it's been so intense for me. It even has been true if it's a stranger and I have actually done nothing mm-hmm. I'll still have this experience of oh no I did something I was at an airport it was before COVID so it was two years ago <laughs> I was at this airport and this man was so angry he was across the gang the hallway the airport hallway from me and he was yelling on his cell phone and I noticed my increased heart rate I noticed I was like, wow, I'm really being impacted by this tension, anxiety. And I and I was like, what's the contract? Why am I impacted by somebody who's 12 feet away who I have nothing to do with? And, and I said, I, I started to work with it. And what I discovered in this particular case was that I had a contract to, to make my father's anger better. Huh. Yes. <laughs> Completely resonates with me. <laughs> And so I I let go of that contract and then it became much easier that he was angry across the hallway. But there's something similar, like our baby nervous systems being born into our families, we want to contribute. Mm -hmm. Like as babies, we want everybody to be happy and we can see that they're not happy. We can see that Mm -hmm. like mom and dad are fighting and that they're just not understanding each other. Like, we as little children can look at them and go, oh, I see where mom's heart is hurt. I see where dad's heart is hurt. Why can't they see each other's hearts? Mm-hmm. We so want their well-being. And so we make agreements with ourselves. I will do everything to make sure everybody's calm and okay in order to have people's hearts be seen. They're just really big contracts for little tiny baby people. Mm-hmm. And we, most of us have them. And so as we start to work with them, we begin to create a relational connection with our baby selves. And we go, oh, honey, of course. Mm -hmm. And I don't want you to have that contract anymore. Mm -hmm. I don't want you to be responsible for your dad's anger anymore. Mm -hmm. You know, it's it's in his hands. It's between him and his own higher power or divinity or thing greater than himself. It's not for me. That's not my responsibility. Yes, I have done a lot of different healing uh, modalities, uh, including what was very interesting for me, ketamine infusion therapy. Oh, oh, yes. 
was really uh, fantastic. As a matter of fact, my husband also with last year opened a ketamine infusion clinic because he underwent the treatment. It was so helpful for himself. He's like, he's in venture capital life sciences. So all these kinds of different healing, neuroscience, supplements, all kinds of things that just help people live a better, healthier, happier life. So his focus. And so I did the treatment and something that was fascinating to me was uh, on the second, it was a course of four infusions um, on four days. The second treatment I had, uh, I labeled actually forgiveness because I forgave myself. I forgave other people that I have very intimate relationships with. And for example, there was something that popped up with my father where I had this vision of him as a small boy popping up and uh, a voice telling me his darkness is not his own because oh. the things that he went through as a little boy and it's also not yours. Oh, that's so beautiful. And to it allowed me to completely let that go. This it was a beautiful release of things that I had worked on for years but that they really got released. So what I still have though, even though certain emotions don't come up anymore at all, I think when you have a lifelong experience of being wired a certain way or having these contracts, then they can still run you in a certain way. And so sometimes when these things still pop, and I'm sure I, I speak for quite some people in the I'm audience, sure. feel like a loser. Why does this still come up? I have so much work. <laughs> so what do we do then? I love that we're touching into different possibilities, like that you can do some of it with the ketamine work that you can do some of it with the unconscious contract work. One of the books that you held up, the Your Resonant Self Workbook, is entirely about contracts. Uh, the one, on, the Your Resonant Self book is all about the neuroscience of self-compassion. And after I wrote that book, then I was traveling around the world and teaching that material, and people kept going, this makes perfect sense, but I can't like myself. I was like, it must make perfect sense that we can't like ourselves. What kind of agreements have we made with ourselves? not to like ourselves. Yeah. And so that's why the workbook is just to be able to deepen in and continue that journey. So we get to use these different technologies and approaches and some of the things that get to open with plant medicine, with ketamine work, can, can then be extended and refined as we learn other tools like the contract work. Absolutely. I think we live at a, in a time that is so wonderful in a sense that we have access to so many different healing modalities and they, a lot of them, it's, it's like they link hands and they elevate each other. I can't work. I just got this in the mail. I had the, the Kindle version of the book already, but the, the, the workbook I just got yesterday and I can't wait to start on on this because just even going through it, I was like, oh my God, I already know this is going to be so healing and helpful to me. You were talking about a UCLA scientist um, yes. that is has been also instrumental, I think, for your work, what he's been doing. There is... Uh, can you tell me more about something that's also a focus of yours with the, what you brought up before with the neural garden? I love that. So the, the brain network theory, yeah. what is that? Yeah. Matthew Lieberman, indeed, the guy at UCLA wrote this beautiful book called Social. And it's a book all about our default mode network. Mm. So we have our brains run in the old days, they would 
do dissections like the old days, the 1700s, they would dissect people's brains and then they would go, oh, here's a little part that's the same as this little part in this brain and this little part in this brain. Everybody must have one. It's shaped like an almond. Let's call it the Greek word for almond. And, and so they did. They called it the amygdala, which is the Greek word for almond. And then they, they would dissect the next little organ and they would go, oh, look, when you cut it in half, it looks like a seahorse. Let's call it the Greek word for seahorse. So they did. They called it the hippocampus. And they were like, each of these different things must do something different. And so the neuroscientists in the early days, now skipping ahead to the 20, early 20th century, they would open people's brains and touch different part of their brains with needles hmm. and see what happened. And they would go, oh, look, they're afraid when we touch here. This must be the fear organ, the amygdala. Oh, look, we stimulate memories when we touch here. This must be the memory organ, the hippocampus. But what we've started to discover now that we have this new technology of fMRIs, is we've started to discover that the brain is much more like an interwoven public transport system. Like that instead of there being one part that's important, there's a whole transit system that's important. There's a whole way that the brain uses itself in a systemic way with a whole bunch of bus stops in different parts of the brain to do different things. And one of the ways that we use our brain is to direct external attention. So if Ariana and I are holding your attention, we're actually keeping you out of your default mode network. Mm -hmm. And every moment when you get bored with us, then your own self pops up, the own, your own sense of self pops up. That's your default mode network, which is the automatic voice of the brain. And what Matthew Lieberman discovered was that everybody has this all the time that you can, a baby before they're even born has this going on in their brain. It's a human thing. We have this network that's trying to figure out how do we belong in our world? Mm -hmm. What's happening with the people around us? How are they doing? What's happening with us? Are we in a good position with them? Have we done what we said we would do? Are we, are we connected the way we want to be connected? Are we replaying conversations that were difficult over and over again in our brains? Are we rerunning our mistakes over and over again because we can't forgive ourselves for our mistakes? Those are the kinds of things that the default mode network does. And we'll notice what's so interesting is how we live now. We live almost entirely in ways that allow us to not be with the default mode network. If we have Netflix on all the time, then we're keeping ourselves out of the default mode network. We're letting other stories give us dopamine rushes that carry us through and keep us out of our default mode network. If we're playing video games, that's a very effective, especially first-person shooter video games are incredibly effective at keeping us out of the default mode network. Cigarettes keep us out of the default mode network. <laughs> Working compulsively keeps us out of, or writing books <laughs> keeps us out of the default mode network. Listening to music sometimes keeps us out of the default mode network. Sometimes when it's those ones where it's nostalgia and it's bringing up old memories, that's like stirring the default mode network. So here we are, kind of brains in the world. And how are we with the networked systems 
that are the way that the brain works. Mm. And with regards to the default mode network, huh, I would love to hear your take on it. So obviously it is there for a reason. It helps us to assess who, where we are in life yeah. um, and it helps us survive oftentimes also thrive. On the other side, it can also keep us uh, locked into self-loathing, yes. keeping ourselves small, especially when we have these recurring, you know, yes. thoughts in our head, how bad we were, or we did this or we did that. And um, what you hear from a lot of people who work in the world of psychedelics, especially psychedelic treatment, whether it's for PTSD, depression, anxiety, or such, all these interesting studies going on at renowned university with fantastic scientists, MDMA, psilocybin. Now, of course, we have ketamine that's legal in all states. But so I, I wonder what is the, what's the sweet spot between using the default mode network in a way that is very good for us and also knowing when to selectively calm it down or even shut it down to be able to think, feel outside of the box and move forward in our self-actualization and also healing. The most wonderful thing is this piece of research that was done by Ruth Lanius, where she was doing a case study look at something that's very similar to the time travel process that I teach in the books and that many people have done in different forms with inner child work, where you actually time travel to the part of yourself that's having the difficult memory. The default mode network tends to bring up difficult memories. Mm -hmm. And that's, we don't even know that the voice that's saying, Sarah, you're so awful. Why did you make that mistake? Why did you say that to Ariane? What the heck do you think you're doing? You shouldn't even do podcast interviews. All of those things are a result of a trauma that we may not even realize what the trauma is. But once we start to think, wonder when was the first time something difficult like this happened? How does this self-criticism make sense given the life that I've lived? Mm -hmm. And if we time travel to the part of ourselves that had that difficult experience with warmth, with resonance, with warm understanding, warm curiosity, and oftentimes when people time travel to themselves, they do reassurance, which is not so helpful. They say they go to their child self and they go, it's going to be okay. <laughs> <laughs> don't worry it's all going to be okay <laughs> but instead if we go to the child self and we say are you scared like we honor that self is having an emotional experience and that what they need is accompaniment rather than reassurance mm. can you explain the difference between accompaniment yeah. and reassurance yes the difference between accompaniment and reassurance is that reassurance is it's going to be okay I have faith in you. You're strong. You're going to make it. That's reassurance. It's, it can be very sweet to receive, but it's really interesting instead to say, did you stop breathing? Do you need acknowledgement of the impact on your body? Would it be sweet if somebody understood how sad you are in this moment? Are you having an experience of disgust? Just like this warm wondering and acknowledgement in a way that even though that past traumatized self was us, we don't know everything about that self's experience. So as we begin to ask those warm questions about how the past self is doing, then the past self is accompanied rather than reassured. 
Does that make sense? It does. And do I understand this correctly? I sense that it feeds into a very deep need of ours, which is connection and not being alone. Yes, it does. That's exactly right. Mm -hmm. And Ruth Lanius's research shows she did before pictures of people's default mode network and after with the fMRI machine. And what she discovered was that this kind of work with warm accompaniment changes the default mode network mm. and makes, you can visually see when a default mode network is in PTSD and is attacking the self. It has a different run. The route of the public transport system of the default mode network actually changes when we do trauma healing work, which mm. is why I do trauma healing work is to make brains good places to live. And I love what you said to make a brain a good and cozy nest to yes. live instead of this place that we're scared of. That's right. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so that we wake up with ourselves and we go, oh, Sarah, honey, welcome yeah. to the world. Yeah. What do you think, Sarah, is the most important concept everyone should know about the brain? If your brain is giving you a hard time, it's not truth, it's trauma. Uh -huh. That's my favorite one sentence compression of everything <laughs> that I do. It's not truth, it's trauma. And to tie into some of the, with what you just said, the trauma and also some of the stuff we've spoken before, the intense emotions that can come up with it. For example, rage. Why do we have to learn to love our own rage? That's such a good question. When we try to turn down, so rage makes sense. Mm -hmm. Rage means that our life was threatened or the life of somebody that we love was threatened or our resources were threatened or the resources of someone we love and care about were threatened. Mm -hmm. That's what rage means. Mm -hmm. And, and so it's a life serving quality. It can also be really scary and it can induce trauma in other people, especially if it's not anchored and moored to what we love. When we know what we love, when we know what the resources are that are threatened in the rage experience, and we can speak to them, then we start to create this connection actually between love and rage. And that allows us to be in our full power without having to turn down our life energy. Mm -hmm. If we don't connect our rage and our love, then what happens is to manage our rage, we turn everything down. The only way to manage rage without hooking it to love is to make the whole nervous system's volume get turned down. Everything, play, sexuality, seeking, fear, grief and panic, care, everything has to have the whole volume turned down, which tends to move people more towards depression. Yes. And how about, because you just mentioned all these different emotions, but how about with regards to the nervous system, also pain? Would that yeah. all get turned down, the perception of physical pain? What's so interesting about the pain network is that we can, we is that pain tends to make people afraid. Mm -hmm. People don't like to feel pain. So if we're having to deal with chronic pain, we're also having to manage chronic fear, which will often be a kind of anxiety. With pain, we also tend to be more isolated. So there's also panic, grief, or alarmed aloneness that has to be held and managed if we're dealing with chronic pain. And, and indeed, to, to if nobody's helping us with our pain, 
if we're unaccompanied and alone and trying to manage it, we often have to turn toward external support, something that will stimulate opiates that help us to manage the pain. Because relationship helps us manage pain. Relationship turns down the volume of pain. But if we don't have relationship, then we'll start to dealing with things like opiate addictions or eating for comfort and to reduce pain and and other things. Those are the two really big ones, though, that and alcohol that really stimulate the three are uh, foods, especially fat, sugar, and salt, alcohol, and of course the opiates. Mm-hmm. And we have, of course, this incredible opiate addiction problem in the United States and in many places in the world, mm-hmm. which I believe is a huge compensation for us living in a world where, where we don't get to be together, where the world tells us we're supposed to be individuals who are taking care of ourselves. And really, humans are not individuals who are supposed to be taking care of ourselves. So if we're trying to do that, we have to have the substances. Yes, we need a, we're, you know, just our ancestors, tens of thousands of years ago, we still carry that in our genetic and also our other imprints. We need a tribe, we need that (laughs) sustenance from others. So many biological aspects of ours are built also to resonate uh, with other people that we're in close community with. And many of us don't have that anymore. And especially if you're on top of that, also dealing with traumatic experiences that you have not healed from yet, it's even more isolating. Yeah. Yeah. Trauma, Trauma is very isolating. Interestingly, success is also very isolating. Why is that, in your opinion? Because also we spoke before about some people having contracts against being successful. Yes, yes. We can have contracts against being successful, but we can also have contracts that prioritize success over everything else. Yeah. And then we're letting go of our care circuit Mm -hmm. because our whole focus is going into our seeking circuit. Mm-hmm. So, so that focus and that drive in that particular circuit, if it's not allowed to weave the relationships in, then it becomes very isolating. Mm-hmm. 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 That makes a lot of sense. And to just to circle back real quick to the trauma, you define trauma as a failure of relationship. What does that mean? Research shows us is that if there's somebody with us, who's understanding what's happening and is supportive and warmly curious about our experience and says, well, yeah, of course you're having a hard time, Mm -hmm. that we don't end up then with trauma memories, with intrusive memories left over from the trauma. Mm -hmm. So whenever we have intrusive memories, it means that somehow we are remembering being totally alone. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Hmm. That makes sense too. And I mean, everybody's life experience and is obviously very different, but speaking generally, somebody who has been dealing with CPTSD complex, yes. How can you begin to heal that? Let's say you had a difficult and even violent childhood. And then also through the course of your adulthood, you had various different experiences that have furthered the, the PTSD. What would some good first steps be that somebody who has not yet 
started to do some work to gently start the healing process. Yeah. It's very good to start with the contracts. Mm -hmm. It's mm -hmm. a very good starting place. It can often be the key that starts to unlock everything else that we work with. I will believe whatever it is that you believe about yourself that's negative. I will believe I'm bad. I will believe I'm not enough. I will believe I'm too sensitive. We get to say, in order to, I will believe that I'm bad. People coming out of CPTSD often believe that there's something wrong with them. I will, I, Sarah, solemnly swear to my essential self that I will believe there's something wrong with me. And then we say, in order to. So this, here we see that conviction that it's not truth, it's trauma. It has a good reason. So we say, I will believe that I'm bad in order to make sense of all of the bad things that have happened to me, hmm. no matter the cost to myself. And we go, is that a very good plan? Is that helpful? Not particularly. Sarah, I release you from this contract and I revoke this vow. And then that allows often, it's like unscrewing the lid on the jar that then let us, lets us have the validation that we need to go into the experiences that created CPSD and begin to do the accompaniment that's needed for those parts. Mm -hmm. It's a beautiful place for us to be circling toward an ending. Wonderful. Thank you for that, Sarah. And I know I've had an hour of your time. I could talk for many more hours with you. I think I've just been beginning scratching the tip of the iceberg of your warm wisdom. And I'm so grateful you've been sharing this time with me. There is a question I love to ask every guest, and that is about the practices that have elevated the person's life mentally, physically, or spiritually. Mm. What is one practice, or maybe there's a few that you would uh, like to share with us, Sarah? I think the one is the warm breath is And it was the starting point for me, because for those of us who have really angry default mode networks, it can be hard to meditate. I would keep reading about how good meditation was for me, and I would try to meditate. But when I would stop to meditate, it would just let all the knives come out and start oh, yeah. stabbing Sarah. So I was like, I need something very short. <laughs> so I started a practice of a warm breath meditation, just one breath, where I have warmth for myself and warmth for my attention. And when my attention wanders away from my breath, I'm just like, of course you wandered away. So that just that practice of one breath of warmth for the self every day begins to change the brain and his fertilizer for our little permaculture garden of neurons. Beautiful, Sarah. Thank you so much. And so people who would like to learn more about you, I personally full-heartedly recommend reading your book, Your Resonant Self, and mm -hmm. I'm getting started on the workbook. But what other ways are there to connect with you? The website, the Your Resonant Self website has free guided meditations, lots of them from both books and, and, and different classes and recordings and lots of links to this podcast and to other podcasts and, and to be able to, there's YouTube stuff. It's a very fun world to step into. It just keeps expanding self-warmth and self-compassion. Yes, it does. That was exactly it from when I when I go into the research about you and went onto your website and all the beautiful 
free offerings and gifts that you also extend. It felt like stepping into a warm mental nest. Oh, good. <laughs> it really did. And yeah, this was absolutely wonderful. Again, Sarah, thank you for all of your wisdom and knowledge. It's so appreciated. Thank you for spending time with us today. And thank you for having this podcast where you bring these wonderful ideas and explorations and yourself to your audience. Superhumanize. Accelerated evolution. Accelerated evolution.